the house of Asterion. And the queen gave birth to a son named Asterion, Apollodorus, library. I know that I am accused of arrogance and perhaps of misanthropy, and perhaps even of madness. These accusations, which I shall punish in due time, are ludicrous. It is true that I never leave my house, but it is also true that its doors, whose number is infinite, stand open night and day to men and also to animals. Anyone who wishes to enter may do so. Here, no womanly splendors, no palatial ostentation shall be found, but only calm and solitude. Here shall be found a house like none other on the face of the earth. Those who say there is a similar house in Egypt speak lies. Even my detractors admit that there is not a single piece of furniture in the house. Another absurd tale is that I, Asterion, am a prisoner. Need I repeat that the door stands open? Need I add that there is no lock? Furthermore, one afternoon I did go out into the streets. If I returned before nightfall, I did so because of the terrible dread inspired in me by the faces of the people, colorless faces as flat as the palm of one's hand. The sun had already gone down, but the helpless cry of a babe and the crude supplications of the masses were signs that I had been recognized. The people prayed, fled, fell prostrate before me. Some climbed up unto the stylobate of the temple of the axes. Others gathered stones. One, I believe, hid in the sea. Not for nothing was my mother a queen. I cannot mix with commoners, even if my modesty should wish it. The fact is, I am unique. I am not interested in what a man can publish abroad to other men. Like the philosopher, I think that nothing can be communicated by the art of writing. Vexatious and trivial minutiae find no refuge in my spirit, which has been formed for greatness. I have never grasped for long the difference between one letter and another. A certain generous impatience has prevented me from learning to read. Sometimes I regret that, because the nights and the days are long. Of course I do not lack for distractions. Sometimes I run like a charging ram through the halls of stone until I tumble dizzily to the ground. Sometimes I crouch in the shadow of a wellhead or at a corner in one of the corridors and pretend I am being hunted. I can pretend any time I like that I am asleep and lie with my eyes closed and my breathing heavy. Sometimes I actually fall asleep. Sometimes by the time I open my eyes, the color of the day has changed. But of all the games, the one I like best is pretending that there is another Asterion. I pretend that he has come to visit me and I show him around the house. Bowing majestically, I say to him, 
Now let us return to our previous intersection, or let us go this way now, out into another courtyard, or I knew that you would like this rain gutter, or now you will see a cistern that has filled with sand, or now you will see how the cellar forks. Sometimes I make a mistake, and the two of us have a good laugh over it. It is not just these games I have thought up. I have also thought a great deal about the house. Each part of the house occurs many times. Any particular place is another place. There is not one wellhead, one courtyard, one drinking trowel, one manger. There are 14, an infinite number, of mangers, drinking troughs, courtyards, wellheads. The house is as big as the world, or rather, it is the world. Nevertheless, by making my way through every single courtyard with its wellhead and every single dusty galley of grey stone, I have come out onto the street and seen the temple of the axes and the sea. That sight I did not understand until a night vision revealed to me that there are also fourteen, an infinite number, of seas and temples. Everything exists many times, fourteen times, but there are two things in the world that apparently exist but once. On high, the intricate sun, and below, Asterion. Perhaps I have created the stars and the sun and this huge house and no longer remember it. Every nine years, nine men come into the house so that I can free them from all evil. I hear their footsteps or their voices far away in the galleries of stone, and I run joyously to find them. The ceremony lasts but a few minutes. One after another they fall, without my ever having to bloody my hands. Where they fall they remain, and their bodies help distinguish one gallery from the others. I do not know how many there have been, but I do know that one of them predicted, as he died, that some day my Redeemer would come. Since then, there has been no pain for me in solitude, because I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will rise and stand above the dust. If my ear could hear every sound in the world, I would hear his footsteps. I hope he takes me to a place with fewer galleries and fewer doors. What will my Redeemer be like, I wonder? Will he be bull or man? Could he possibly be a bull with the face of a man? Or will he be like me? The morning sun shimmered on the bronze sword. Now there was not a trace of blood left on it. Can you believe it, Ariadne? said Theseus. The minotaur scarcely defended itself. Deutsch's Requiem Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. 
Job 13.15 My name is Otto Dietrich Zurlind. One of my forebears, Christoph Zurlind, died in the cavalry charge that decided the victory of Zorndorf. During the last days of 1870, my maternal great-grandfather, Ulrich Forkel, was killed in the Marchenoir forest by French sharpshooters. Captain Dietrich Zurlind, my father, distinguished himself in 1914 at the siege of Namur, and again two years later in the crossing of the Danube. As for myself, I am to be shot as a torturer and a murderer. The court has acted rightly. From the first, I have confessed my guilt. Tomorrow, by the time the prison clock strikes nine, I shall have entered the realms of death. It is natural that I should think of my elders, since I am come so near their shadow. Since somehow I am they. During the trial, which fortunately was short, I did not speak. To explain myself at that point would have put obstacles in the way of the verdict and made me appear cowardly. Now things have changed. On this night that precedes my execution, I can speak without fear. I have no desire to be pardoned, for I feel no guilt, but I do wish to be understood. Those who heed my words shall understand the history of Germany and the future history of the world. I know that cases such as mine, exceptional and shocking now, will very soon be unremarkable. Tomorrow I shall die, but I am a symbol of the generations to come. I was born in Marienburg in 1908. Two passions, music and metaphysics, now almost forgotten, allowed me to face many terrible years with bravery and even happiness. I cannot list all my benefactors, but there are two names I cannot allow myself to omit. Brahms and Schopenhauer. Frequently, I also repaired to poetry. To those two names, then, I would add another colossal Germanic name, William Shakespeare. Early on, theology had held some interest for me, but I was forever turned from that fantastic discipline and from Christianity by Schopenhauer with his direct arguments and Shakespeare and Brahms with the infinite variety of their worlds. I wish anyone who is held in awe and wonder, quivering with tenderness and gratitude, transfixed by some passage in the work of these blessed men, anyone so touched, to know that I too was once transfixed like them, I the abominable. Nietzsche and Spengler entered my life in 1927. A certain 18th century author observes that no man wants to owe anything to his contemporaries. In order to free myself from an influence that I sense to be impressive, I wrote an article titled Abrechnung mit Spengler, wherein I pointed out that the most unequivocal monument to those characteristics that the author called Faustian was not Goethe's miscellaneous drama, but rather 
a poem written twenty centuries ago, the De Rerum Naturae. I did, however, give just due to the sincerity of our philosopher of history, his radically German, Kerndorch, and military spirit. In 1929, I joined the party. I shall say little about my years of apprenticeship. They were harder for me than for many others, for in spite of the fact that I did not lack valor, I felt no calling for violence. I did, however, realize that we were on the threshold of a new age, and that that new age, like the first years of Islam or Christianity, demanded new men. As individuals, my comrades were odious to me. I strove in vain to convince myself that for the high cause that had brought us all together, we were not individuals. Theologians claim that if the Lord's attention were to stray for even one second from my right hand, which is now writing, that hand would be plunged into nothingness, as though it had been annihilated by a lightless fire. No one can exist, say I. No one can sip a glass of water or cut off a piece of bread without justification. That justification is different for every man. I awaited the inexorable war that would test our faith. It was enough for me to know that I would be a soldier in its battles. I once feared that we would be disappointed by the cowardice of England and Russia. Chance, or destiny, wove a different future for me. On March 1st, 1939, at nightfall, there were riots in Tilsit, which the newspapers did not report. In the street behind the synagogue, two bullets pierced my leg, and it had to be amputated. Days later, our armies entered Bohemia. When the sirens announced the news, I was in that sedentary hospital, trying to lose myself, forget myself in the books of Schopenhauer. On the windowsill slept a massive, obese cat, the symbol of my vain destiny. The Maker He had never lingered among the pleasures of memory. Impressions, momentary and vivid, would wash over him. A potter's vermilion gaze the sky vault filled with stars that were also gods, the moon from which a lion had fallen, the smoothness of marble under his sensitive, slow fingertips, the taste of wild boar meat, which he liked to tear at with brusque white bites, a Phoenician word, the black shadow cast by a spear on the yellow sand, the nearness of the sea or women. Heavy wine, its harsh edge tempered by honey. These things could flood the entire circuit of his soul. He had known terror, but he had known wrath and courage as well, for once he had been the first to scale an enemy wall. Keen, curious, 
inadvertent, with no law but satisfaction and immediate indifference. He had wandered the various world, and on now this, now that seashore. He had gazed upon the cities of men and their palaces. In teeming marketplaces, or at the foot of a mountain, upon whose uncertain peak there might be satyrs, he had listened to complex stories, which he took in as he took in reality, without asking whether they were true or false. Gradually, the splendid universe began drawing away from him. A stubborn fog blurred the lines of his hand. The night lost its peopling stars. The earth became uncertain under his feet. Everything grew distant and indistinct. When he learned that he was going blind, he cried out. Stoicism had not yet been invented, and Hector could flee without self-diminution. Now, he felt... I will not be able to see the sky filled with mythological dread, or this face that the years will transfigure. Days and nights passed over this despair of his flesh, but one morning he awoke, looked, with calm now, at the blurred things that lay about him, and felt inexplicably the way one might feel upon recognizing a melody or a voice that all this had happened to him before, and that he had faced it with fear, but also with joy and hopefulness and curiosity. Then he descended into his memory, which seemed to him endless, and managed to draw up from that vertigo the lost remembrance that gleamed like a coin in the rain. Perhaps because he had never really looked at it, except in a dream. The memory was this. Another boy had insulted him, and he had run to his father and told him the story. As though he weren't paying attention or didn't understand, his father let him talk, but then he took a bronze knife down from the wall, a beautiful knife charged with power that the boy had furtively coveted. Now he held it in his hands, and the surprise of possession wiped away the insult that he had suffered. But his father's voice was speaking. Let it be known that you are a man. And there was a command in the voice. Night's blindness was upon the paths. Clutching to himself the knife in which he sensed a magical power, the boy descended the steep, rough hillside that his house stood on and ran to the seashore, dreaming that he was Ajax and Perseus and peopling the dark, salt air with wounds and battles. It was the precise flavor of that moment that he sought for now. The rest didn't matter. The insulting words of his challenge, the clumsy combat... The return with the bloodied blade. Another memory, in which there was also a knight 
and the foretaste of adventure sprouted from that first one. A woman, the first woman the gods had given him, had awaited him in the darkness of a subterranean crypt, and he searched for her through galleries that were like labyrinths of stone and down slopes that descended into darkness. Why had those memories come to him, and why did they come without bitterness, like some near foreshadowing of the present? With grave wonder he understood. In this night of his mortal eyes into which he was descending, love and adventure were also awaiting him. Ares and Aphrodite, because now he began to sense, because now he began to be surrounded by a rumor of glory and hexameters, a rumor of men who defend a temple that the gods will not save, a rumor of black ships that set sail in search of a beloved isle, the rumor of the odysseys and iliads that it was his fate to sing and to leave echoing in the cupped hands of human memory. These things we know, but not those that he felt as he descended into his last darkness. Dream Tigers In my childhood, I was a fervent worshipper of the tiger, not the jaguar, the spotted tiger that inhabits the floating islands of water hyacinths along the Piranha and the tangled wilderness of the Amazon, but the true tiger, the striped Asian breed that can f be faced only by men of war in a castle atop an elephant. I would stand for hours on end before one of the cages at the zoo. I would rank vast encyclopedias and natural history books by the splendor of their tigers. I still remember those pictures. I who cannot recall without error a woman's brow or smile. My childhood outgrown. The tigers and my passion for them faded, but they are still in my dreams. In that underground sea or chaos, they still endure. As I sleep, I am drawn into some dream or other, and suddenly I realize that it's a dream. At those moments, I often think, this is a dream, a pure diversion of my will. And since I have unlimited power, I'm going to bring forth a tiger. Oh, incompetence. My dreams never seem to engender the creature I so hunger for. The tiger does appear, but it is all dried up, or it's flimsy looking, or it has impure vagaries of shape, or an unacceptable size, or it's altogether too ephemeral, or it looks more like a dog or a bird than like a tiger. Toenails. Gentle socks pamper them by day, and shoes cobbled of leather fortify them, but my toes hardly notice. All they're interested in is turning out toenails, 
semi-transparent, flexible sheets of a horn-like material, as defense against whom? Brutish, distrustful as only they can be. My toes labor ceaselessly at manufacturing that frail armament. They turn their backs on the universe and its ecstasies in order to spin out endlessly those ten pointless projectile heads, which are cut away time and again by the sudden snips of a engine. By the ninetieth twilight day of their prenatal confinement, my toes had cranked up that extraordinary factory. And when I am tucked away in Recoleta, in an ash-colored house bedecked with dried flowers and amulets, they will still be at their stubborn work until corruption at last slows them, then and the beard upon my cheeks. Argumentum Ornithologicum I close my eyes and see a flock of birds. The vision lasts a second, or perhaps less. I am not sure how many birds I saw. Was the number of birds definite or indefinite? The problem involves the existence of God. If God exists, the number is definite, because God knows how many birds I saw. If God does not exist, the number is indefinite, because no one can have counted. In this case, I saw fewer than ten birds, let us say, and more than one, but did not see nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, or two birds. I saw a number between ten and one, which was not nine, eight, seven, six, five, etc. That integer, not nine, not eight, not seven, not six, not five, etc., is inconceivable. Ergo, God exists. A yellow rose. It was neither that afternoon nor the next that Giambattista Marino died, that illustrious man proclaimed by the unanimous mouths of fame, to use an image that was dear to him, as the new Homer or the new Dante, and yet the motionless and silent act that took place that afternoon was, in fact, the last thing that happened in his life. His brow laureled with years and glory. The man died in a vast Spanish bed with carven pillars. It costs us nothing to picture a serene balcony a few steps away, looking out toward the west and below, marbles and laurels, and a garden whose terraced steps are mirrored in a rectangular pool. In a goblet, a woman has set a yellow rose. The man murmurs the inevitable lines of poetry that even he, to tell the truth, is a bit tired of by now. Popera di giardin, pompa di prato, 
Gemma di primavera, occhio d'aprile. Then the revelation occurred. Marina saw the rose as Adam had seen it in paradise, and he realized that within it lay its own eternity, not within his words, and that we might speak about the rose, allude to it, but never truly express it, and that the tall, haughty, haughty volumes that made a golden dimness in the corner of his room were not, as his vanity had dreamed them, a mirror of the world, but just another thing added to the world's contents. Marino achieved that epiphany on the eve of his death, and Homer and Dante may have achieved it as well. The Witness In a stable that stands almost in the shadow of the new stone church, a man with gray eyes and gray beard, lying amid the odor of the animals, humbly tries to will himself into death, much as a man might will himself to sleep. The day, obedient to vast and secret laws, slowly shifts about and mingles the shadows in the lowly place. Outside lie plowed fields, a ditch clogged with dead leaves, and the faint track of a wolf in the black clay where the line of woods begins. The man sleeps and dreams, forgotten. The bells for orisons awaken him. Bells are now one of the evening's customs in the kingdoms of England, but as a boy the man has seen the face of Woden, the sacred horror and the exultation, the clumsy wooden idol laden with Roman coins and ponderous vestments, the sacrifice of horses, dogs, and prisoners. Before dawn he will be dead, and with him the last eyewitness images of pagan rites will perish, never to be seen again. The world will be a little poorer when the Saxon man is dead. Things, events that occupy space, yet come to an end when someone dies, may make us stop and wonder. And yet one thing, or an infinite number of things, dies with every man's or woman's death, unless the universe itself has a memory, as theosophists have suggested. In the course of time, there was one day that closed the last eyes that had looked on Christ. The battle of Junin and the love of Helen died with the death of one man. What will die with me the day I die? What pathetic or frail image will be lost to the world? The voice of Macedonio Fernandez, the image of a bay horse in a vacant lot on the corner of Serrano and Charcas, a bar of sulfur in the drawer of a mahogany desk, Mutations. In a hallway, I saw a sign with an arrow pointing the way, and I was struck by the thought that that inoffensive symbol had once been a thing of iron, an inexorable mortal projectile that had penetrated the flesh of men and lions 
and clouded the son of Thermopylae, and bequeathed to Harold Sigurdsson, for all time, six feet of English earth. Several days later, someone showed me a photograph of a Magyar horseman. A coil of rope hung about its mount's chest. I learned that the rope, which had once flown through the air and lassoed bulls in the pasture, was now just an insolent decoration on a rider's Sunday riding gear. In the cemetery on the west side, I saw a runic cross carved out of red marble. Its arms splayed and widened towards the ends, and it was bounded by a circle. That circumscribed and limited cross was a figure of the cross with unbound arms, that is in turn the symbol of the gallows on which a god was tortured, that vile machine decried by Lucian of Samosata. Cross, rope, and arrow, ancient implements of mankind, today reduced or elevated to symbols. I do not know why I marvel at them so. When there is nothing on earth that forgetfulness does not fade, memory alter, and when no one knows what sort of image the future may translate it into. Parable of Cervantes and the Quixote. Weary of his land of Spain, an old soldier of the king's army sought solace in the vast geographies of Ariosto, in that valley of the moon in which one finds the time that is squandered by dreams, and in the golden idol of Muhammad stolen by Montalban. In gentle self-mockery, this old soldier conceived a credulous man, his mind unsettled by the reading of all those wonders, who took it into his head to ride out in search of adventures and enchantments in prosaic places, with names such as El Tobosco and Montiel. Defeated by reality, by Spain, Don Quixote died in 1614 in the town of his birth. He was survived only a short time by Miguel de Cervantes. For both the dreamer and the dreamed, that entire adventure had been the clash of two worlds, the unreal world of romances, the common everyday world of the 17th century. They never suspected that the years would at last smooth away the discord, never suspected that in the eyes of the future, La Mancha and Montiel and the lean figure of the knight of mournful countenance would be no less poetic than the adventures of Sinbad or the vast geographies of Ariosto. For in the beginning of literature, there is myth, as there is also in the end of it. Paradiso, 31, 108. Diodorus Siculus tells the story of a god that is cut into pieces and scattered over the earth. Which of us, walking through the twilight or retracing some day in our past, has never felt that we have lost some infinite thing? Mankind has lost a face, an irrecoverable face, and all men wish they could be that pilgrim, dreamed in the imprion under the rose, 
who goes to Rome and looks upon the veil of St. Veronica and murmurs in belief. My Lord Jesus Christ, very God is this indeed, thy likeness in such fashion wrought. There is a face in stone beside a path and an inscription that reads, the true portrait of the holy face of the Christ of Yein. If we really knew what the face looked like, we would possess the key to the parables and know whether the son of the carpenter was also the son of God. Paul saw the face as a light that struck him to the ground, John as the sun when it shines forth in all its strength, Teresa de Jesus many times bathed in serene light, although she could never say with certainty what the color of its eyes was. Those features are lost to us, as a magical number created from our customary digits can be lost, as the image in a kaleidoscope is lost forever. We can see them and yet not grasp them. A Jew's profile in the subway might be the profile of Christ. The hands that give us back change at a ticket booth may mirror those that soldiers nailed one day to the cross. Some feature of the crucified face may lurk in every mirror. Perhaps the face died, faded away, so that God might be all faces. Who knows but that tonight we may see it in the labyrinths of dream and not know tomorrow that we saw it. Parable of the Palace That day the yellow emperor showed his palace to the poet. Little by little, step by step, they left behind, in long procession, the first westward-facing terraces, which, like the jagged hemicycles of an almost unbounded amphitheater, stepped down into a paradise, a garden whose metal mirrors and intertwined hedges of juniper were a prefiguration of the labyrinth. Cheerfully, they lost themselves in it, at first as though condescending to a game, but then not without some uneasiness, because its straight alleys suffered from a very gentle but continuous curvature, so that secretly the avenues were circles. Around midnight, observation of the planets and the opportune sacrifice of a tortoise allowed them to escape the bonds of that region that seemed enchanted though not to free themselves from that sense of being lost that accompanied them to the end. They wandered next through antechambers and courtyards and libraries, and then through a hexagonal room with a water clock. And one morning from a tower, they made out, of, out a man of stone, whom later they lost sight of forever. And in canoes hewn from sandalwood, they crossed many gleaming rivers, or perhaps a single river many times. The imperial entourage would pass, and people would fall to their knees and bow their heads to the ground. But one day the courtiers came to an island where one man did not do this, for he had never seen the celestial sun before, and the executioner had to decapitate him. 
The eyes of the emperor and poet looked with indifference on black tresses and black dances and golden masks. The real merged and mingled with the dreamed, or the real, rather, was one of the shapes the dream took. It seemed impossible that the earth should be anything but gardens, fountains, architectures, and forms of splendor. Every hundred steps, a tower cut the air. To the eye, their color was identical, but the first of them was yellow and the last was scarlet. That was how delicate the gradations were and how long the series. It was at the foot of the penultimate tower that the poet, who had appeared untouched by the spectacles which all the others had so greatly marveled at, recited the brief composition that we link indissolubly to his name today. The words which, as the most elegant historians never cease repeating, garnered the poet immortality and death. The text has been lost. There are those who believe that it consisted of but a single line, others of a single word. What do we know, however incredible it may be, is that within the poem lay the entire enormous palace, whole and to the last detail. With every venerable porcelain, it contained and every scene on every porcelain, all the lights and shadows of its twilights, and every forlorn or happy moment of the glorious dynasties of mortals, gods, and dragons that had lived within it through all its endless past. Everyone fell silent. Then the emperor spoke. You have stolen my palace, he cried, and the executioner's iron scythe mowed down the poet's life. Others tell the story differently. The world cannot contain two things that are identical. No sooner, they say, had the poet uttered his poem than the palace disappeared. As though in a puff of smoke wiped from the face of the earth by the final syllable. Such legends, of course, are simply literary fictions. The poet was the emperor's slave and died a slave. His composition fell into oblivion because it merited oblivion, and his descendants still seek, though they shall never find, the word for the universe. Everything and nothing. There was no one inside him. Behind his face, which even in the bad paintings of the time resembles no other, and his words which were multitudinous and of a fantastical and agitated turn, there was no more than a slight chill, a dream someone had failed to dream. At first he thought that everyone was like him, but the surprise and bewilderment of an acquaintance to whom he began to describe that hollowness showed him his error, and also let him know forever after that an individual ought not to differ from its species. He thought at one point that books might hold some remedy for his condition, and so he learned the little Latin and less Greek that a contemporary would later mention. Then he reflected that what he was looking for 
might be found in the performance of an elemental ritual of humanity, and so he allowed himself to be initiated by Anne Hathaway one long evening in June. At twenty-something, he went off to London. Instinctively, he had already trained himself to the habit of feigning that he was somebody, so that his nobodiness might not be discovered. In London, he found the calling he had been predestined to. He became an actor, that person who stands upon a stage and plays at being another person, for an audience of people who play at taking him for that person. The work of a thespian held out a remarkable happiness to him, the first perhaps he had ever known. But when the last line was delivered, and the last dead man applauded off the stage, the hated taste of unreality would assail him. He would cease being Ferex or Tamerlane, and return to being nobody. Haunted, hounded, he began imagining other heroes. Other tragic fables. Thus, while his body in whorehouses and taverns around London lived its life as body, the soul that lived inside it would be Caesar, who ignores the admonition of the Sibyl, and Juliet, who hates the lark, and Macbeth, who speaks on the moor with the witches who are also the fates, the three weird sisters. No one was as many men as that man, that man whose repertoire, like that of the Egyptian Proteus, was all the appearances of being. From time to time, he would leave a confession in one corner or another of the work, certain that it would not be deciphered. Richard says that inside himself, he plays the part of many, and Iago says with curious words, I am not what I am. The fundamental identity of living, dreaming, and performing inspired him to famous passages. For twenty years he inhabited that guided and directed hallucination, but one morning he was overwhelmed with a surfeit and horror of being, so many kings that die by the sword, and so many unrequited lovers who come together, separate, and melodiously expire. That very day, he decided to sell his theater. Within a week, he had returned to his birthplace, where he recovered the trees and the river of his childhood, and did not associate them with those others, fabled with mythological allusion and Latin words, that his muse has celebrated. He had to be somebody. He became a retired businessman. Had made a fortune and had an interest in loans, lawsuits, and petty usury. It was in that role that he dictated the arid last will and testament that we know today, from which he deliberately banished every trace of sentiment or literature. Friends of London would visit his retreat, and he would once again play the role of poet for them. History adds that before or after he died, he discovered himself standing before God, and said to him, "I, who have been so many men in vain, wish to be one, to be myself." God's voice answered him out of a whirlwind, "I too am not I. I dream the world as you, Shakespeare, 
dreamed your own work, and among the forms of my dream are you, who like me are many, yet no one. Inferno 132 From the half-light of dawn to the half-light of evening, the eyes of a leopard in the last years of the twelfth century looked upon a few wooden boards, some vertical iron bars, some varying men and women, a blank wall, and perhaps a stone gutter littered with dry leaves. The leopard did not know, could not know, that it yearned for love and cruelty, and the hot pleasure of tearing flesh and a breeze with the scent of deer, but something inside it was suffocating and howling in rebellion, and God spoke to it in a dream. You shall live and die in this prison, so that a man that I have knowledge of may see you a certain number of times, and never forget you, and put your figure and your symbol into a poem, which has its exact place in the weft of the universe. You suffer captivity, but you shall have given a word to the poem. In the dream, God illuminated the animal's rude understanding, and the animal grasped the reasons and accepted its fate. But when it awoke, there was only an obscure resignation in it, a powerful ignorance, because the machine of the world is exceedingly complex for the simplicity of a savage beast. Years later, Dante was to die in Ravenna, as unjustified and alone as any other man. In a dream, God told him the secret purpose of his life and work. Dante, astonished, learned at last who he was and what he was, and he blessed the bitternesses of his life. Legend has it that when he awoke, he sensed that he had received and lost an infinite thing, something he would never be able to recover or even to describe from afar, because the machine of the world is exceedingly complex for the simplicity of men. Borges and I. It's Borges, the other one, that things happen to. I walk through Buenos Aires and I pause, mechanically now perhaps, to gaze at the arch of an entryway and its inner door. News of Borges reaches me by mail, or I see his name on a list of academics or in some biographical dictionary. My taste runs to hourglasses, maps, 18th century typefaces, etymologies, the taste of coffee, and the prose of Robert Louis Stevenson. Borges shares those preferences, but in a vain sort of way that turns them into the accoutrements of an actor. It would be an exaggeration to say that our relationship is hostile. I live, I allow myself to live, so that Borges can spin out his literature, and that literature is my justification. I willingly admit that he has written a number of sound pages, but those pages will not save me, because, perhaps because the good in them no longer belongs to indi any individual, not even to that other man, 
but rather to language itself or to tradition. Beyond that, I am doomed, utterly and inevitably, to oblivion. And fleeting moments will be all of me that survives in that other man. Little by little, I have been turning everything over to him, though I know the perverse way he has of distorting and magnifying everything. Spinoza believed that all things wish to go on being what they are. Stone wishes eternally to be stone, and tiger to be tiger. I shall endure in Borges, not in myself, if indeed I am anybody at all. But I recognize myself less in his books than in many others, or in the tedious strumming of a guitar. Years ago, I tried to free myself from him, and I moved on from the mythologies of the slums and outskirts of the city to games with time and infinity. But those games belong to Borges now, now I shall have to think up of other things. So my life is a counterpoint, a point-counterpoint, a kind of fugue, and a falling away. And everything winds up being lost to me, and everything falls into oblivion, or into the hands of the other man. I'm not sure which of us is that's writing this page. Covered Mirrors Islam tells us that on the unappealable day of judgment, all who have perpetrated images of living things will reawaken with their works and will be ordered to blow life into them, and they will fail, and they and their works will be cast into the fires of punishment. As a child, I knew that horror of the spectral duplication or multiplication of reality, but mine would come as I stood before large mirrors. As soon as it began to grow dark outside, the constant, infallible functioning of mirrors, the way they followed my every movement, their cosmic pantomime, would seem eerie to me. One of my insistent pleas to God and my guardian angel was that I not dream of mirrors. I recall clearly that I would keep one eye on them uneasily. I sometimes feared that they would begin to veer off from reality, other times that I would see my face in them disfigured by strange misfortunes. I have learned that this horror is monstrously abroad in the world again. The story is quite simple and terribly unpleasant. In 1927, I met a grave young woman, first by telephone, because Julia began as a voice without a name or face, and then on a corner at nightfall. Her eyes were alarmingly large, her hair jet black and straight, her figure severe. She was the granddaughter and great-granddaughter of Federalists, as I was the grandson and great-grandson of Unitarians, but that ancient discord between our lineages was, for us, a bond, a fuller possession of our homeland. She lived with her family in a big, run-down, high-ceilinged house, in the resentment and savorlessness 
of genteel poverty. In the afternoons, only very rarely at night, we would go out walking through her neighborhood, which was Balvenera. We would stroll along beside the high blank wall of the railway yard. Once we walked down Sarmiento all the way to the cleared grounds of the Parque Centenario. Between us, there was neither love itself nor the fiction of love. I sensed in her an intensity that was utterly unlike the intensity of eroticism, and I feared it. In order to forge an intimacy with women, one often tells them about true or apocryphal things that happened in one's youth. I must have told her at some point about my horror of mirrors, and so in 1928, I must have planted the hallucination that was to flower in 1931. Now I have just learned that she has gone insane, and that, and that in her room all the mirrors are covered, because she sees my reflection in them, usurping her own, and she trembles and cannot speak, and says that I am magically following her, watching her, stalking her. What dreadful bondage, the bondage of my face, or one of my former faces. Its odious fate makes me odious as well, but I don't care anymore.